One year after the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh. The events that transpired for many Jews felt like the 9-11 for the American Jewish community. The time when our sense of security was shaken, our sense of well-being was shaken, and we had to struggle and grapple anew with the idea that someone or some groups of people hate us so much that they actually want to hurt us. And so when people are voting for Trump as human beings, are they voting to really hate us? Or is there something that we can talk about? Is there something that I, as a Muslim, can listen to and talk to my kids about and tell them, look, maybe people are threatened because they value something. Whether it's wrong or right, we still have to listen as human beings. How can we hear each other? How can we really love and embrace, even if it hurts? From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Our guests this week are Naz Georges, Executive Director of Cordoba House, and Rabbi Josh Stanton of East End Temple in New York. These two faith leaders have forged a unique bond and faith partnership of shared values, convictions, and commitment to empathetic compassion. Beliefs producer Jay Woodward met with them at East End Temple in New York. I'm here with Naz Georges of Cordoba House. I'm here with Rabbi Josh Stanton of East End Temple. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. So I've asked you both here so that we could reflect on the time of year, reflect on the events a year ago, and how it brought you together. Maybe you could just start by getting us all together on the same page about um, the anniversary that we're celebrating is a difficult word, but we're definitely remembering the lives lost and the significance of the fact. Rabbi, would you like to start? So on October 27th of last year, 11 members of the Jewish people were murdered because of their religious tradition. And it happened at the end of October, right as the leaves were falling and it was starting to get dark earlier. And after the high holidays, when people have already hopefully attained a level of spiritual connection and sense of community purpose. And the events that transpired for many Jews felt like the 9-11 for the American Jewish community. The time when our sense of security was shaken, our sense of well-being was shaken, and we had to struggle and grapple anew with the idea that someone or some groups of people hate us so much that they actually want to hurt us. Jonathan, this is not new to the Muslim community, uh, as you may well be aware, but what was very different about this particular attack is that I was asked to write a few sentences of condolence uh, to the Jewish community. Like many occasions like this, I'm asked to write a statement and release it. But for me, this was a very personal event and a very personal tragedy, which I myself and many members of our community internalized. And the reason for this is because we we are sharing not just space, but we're sharing friendship and we're interacting on a very personal level with the rabbi and with many members of this Jewish East End Temple community. We come here with my kids every Sunday, and I have founded uh, an Islamic Sunday school program which found its home here. Uh, and I come here on Fridays to pray with my colleagues, the Islamic Juma prayers. We come here with our teens. We gather together and we have programs talking about what affects Jewish and Muslim teens today here in New York City. And we've also discovered 
within the course of our conversations that many of our children go to school, to middle school, to high school with each other, and they've known each other and invited one another to their respective parties and bar mitzvahs without us even knowing. And they've been over at our places. And we've also celebrated Rosh Hashanah and other Jewish festivals in their homes. So when something like this happens and you're asked to write a press release or a statement, uh, it does not feel like an impersonal political uh, note any longer because this is the place where we come to. And what happened in Pittsburgh could have, it's not about, about a person coming in and hating the Jewish people. It could have been right here with my children at the time that people are praying and with my children's closest friends and our family friends. And so in a society that's that intertwined, you can't just write a press release. You have to be here. You have to be here to mourn. You have to be here to grieve. And you have to stand as a member of the Jewish family together. And so when people say, well, why doesn't a Muslim, you know, we need a Muslim representative to go there, you know, to make sure that we stand for the Jewish people. For me, I said to myself, well, I am part and parcel, just as my children, family, and the other families here, of that very community. So how do you define the other? So your relationship stands apart, even though it seems very natural that the close collaboration between your two communities can evolve out of purely a spiritual place, but it also comes from a societal trauma. Is that a fair assessment? I actually think that our two religious communities over time have experienced trauma but are coming together because of a shared set of values, a shared experience uh, as first, second, and third generation Americans, and a shared set of values as Muslim and Jewish Americans. So the most educated women in the country are Jewish, followed by Muslim women. We are working very hard to make our way in American society, and I feel that my parents and grandparents made their way in this country much in the way that I see Muslim Americans making their way. And the contributions that they're making to society are singular. So when a Muslim American does something that is of incredible good for the United States or people writ large, I feel a sense of pride because it feels as though they are taking the same path as Jewish Americans over the past several generations. Our unique collaboration is also filled with a sense of hope and a sense of shared purpose. We are Americans, we are people of faith, and we are people who care deeply about each other. And Naz actually is the person with members of her community who came to sit Shiva with myself and other members of the East End Temple community the day after Pittsburgh happened. And it was the first time that I had the chance to just be sad um, I almost didn't feel like I had permission beforehand to just grieve because I had to be in contact with our community leaders. I had to be in contact with the police department. I was interviewed on the news. I was a human doing, not a human being. And for the first time, I was able to step out of role as a community leader and one of the many Jewish leaders called upon to act with great care, but also great uh, speed in the wake of this tragedy. And I could just be a person who is grieving the loss of 11 souls whose lives were taken unnecessarily through an act of hate. And so Naz's compa compassion and the compassion of her community members 
gave me the gift of space and time and uh, the, the chance to reconnect with my own heart. Um, it was as though I was in such a headspace in the um, horrible minutes and hours and day afterwards that it was the first time I could just be a person. And so that's an incredible gift, not born necessarily out of shared suffering, but shared love and hope and a sense of what still can be for our society as a pluralistic society, a society that welcomes people of all faith, and as a society that has in a unique way fostered and encouraged collaborations between communities. When Naz's community uses our space for Sunday school, I often like to be out front to greet the families because I feel that they are part and parcel of uh, our community as well. Um, we often collaborate on volunteer projects. There, one of our uh, co-presidents uh, worked with Nas to make an interfaith Seder happen this past spring. Our teens with Michael Hunter Oaks and our cantor Shira Ginsburg uh, composed a remarkable song about interfaith harmony, um, music video yet to come, but um, it's on its way. And they performed it together at an interfaith Shabbat and iftar dinner in the middle of Ramadan. Um, so we had literally a Shabbat service, then Juma, or pardon me, then um, the, the Maghrib prayers, and then uh, an iftar breaking of the fast in the middle of Ramadan, and a celebration of what our teens had done and what our communities are doing in collaboration and uh, in a shared vision for what could be with closer collaboration. So I actually think in some ways we are the antithesis of Pittsburgh. That is a representation of hate in our society. Ours is a representation of hope in our society. And what is very difficult sometimes and emotionally draining is going between the two, acknowledging the reality that there are people in our society who hate without ever for a moment letting them diminish the vision that we have for people who hope and love and care and are able to build together. The last 70 years of the Jewish community has, uh, and, and their story in America has been certainly one of flourishing. Like you had mentioned the Jewish experience for the past two, three generations, the way that there was um, exodus diaspora after World War II coming to America and really finding a way to redefine, become an American Jewish community. Do you find that you see something similar happening in Islamic spaces in America now? Is there, is there a greater sense of the, of the claiming of the identity that, that mirrors that in some way? Definitely. Uh, I feel that we just have to look at our children um, to validate uh, this particular point. As I mentioned before, our children have been going to school with one another. Uh, for us, the rabbi and I, we came together with our communities at the beginning intentionally as Muslim and Jewish groups coming together, extending a hand of friendship, a hand of love to one another. But for our children, it wasn't about being Jewish or Muslim. It was just about being American kids here in New York City. And they didn't even know that they were Jewish or they were Muslim. Most of my, my son's friends who were Jewish did not even know that my son was coming to a synagogue for his programs. And in fact, many of our Jewish friends don't come to synagogues, but have been coming recently 
to this particular synagogue because I come to a synagogue and my son comes to a synagogue. So here you have Muslim Americans coming to a synagogue, partnering with the rabbi and with the wonderful congregation of friends that we have here and bringing our Jewish friends who don't come to synagogues back to the synagogue. So... So this is what the point here is that our children don't look at race and, and, and color and creed. They look at in our being American. That's it. And that this is what the United States really stands for. And it doesn't matter who you are, what color you are, what race you are, what language you speak. For our children, it's, this is the United States. And it represents the best of humanity in that aspect. And, and there's a saying that if we can do this in New York, we can do this anywhere. And so this is what my hope is, because we need to really pay attention um, in, in the words of Jesus Christ that, you know, a child leads the way. And that really is true, because if we're not paying attention to that, we're not seeing what the present is and what the future is going to increasingly look like. I'd like to ask you more about your kids, both kid kids and teenager kids. A study was just released that indicated, especially in the Jewish community, that there's a, a reluctance, a, a, a concern about wearing outward symbols of faith. Do, do either of your young people's communities feel uh, an additional trauma that you don't necessarily remember yourselves even though there is a shared experience between your general communities, what about the specifics of where it is right now? I hear about a bit of a duality, that there is anxiety about outward expressions of faith, and at the same time that those outward expressions are an act of defiance that makes people really proud, that people are saying out loud that they are Jewish as a way of staking a claim in society that we as a people belong, that being on the sidelines is not an option. So I hear of some smaller group of people kind of hiding or going underground with their faith out of fear and anxiety and maybe latent anti-Semitism in some circles. I also hear about people loudly proclaiming it and sort of saying, so what? This is who I am. This is what I'm about. What are you going to do about it? And so it's both. And in some ways, on different days and different moments, I feel both too. I walk around with a kippah on, and some moments I, I do so with head held high and, you know, what do you want? And during the high holidays, I'm often on the subway with a shofar, a giant ram's horn. It's really hard to miss a rabbi with a ram's <laughs> horn during the high holidays, dr riding around on the train when it's packed. That's so New York. It's so New York. And people come up to me and they say, can you play it? Can you do it? So then I'm the rabbi playing the shofar on the train. It's like a terrible, <laughs> it's, a, it's a parody of a parody of a parody. And uh, so I have moments like that. And then I have moments where maybe on days when I'm tired or things aren't going well or whatever it might be, when I'm really anxious about having a kippah on and being visibly Jewish. One of the nice things about being in New York is that I feel very safe here. I would say openly, when I venture to other parts of the country, I feel less safe. And there are times when I'm less open about being Jewish. I might wear a baseball cap. I might not wear a head covering, depending on the context in which I find myself. So when I took a road trip, I drove from New York City to Lubbock, Texas, where my in-laws are. When I was in Alabama, I did not wear a kippah, and I saw many more Confederate flags 
than any other symbol forthrightly. There are probably some more Confederate flags than American flags in certain parts. And I made the very intentional choice not to wear a kippah. Um, I can't even imagine what it's like to be a person of color, but I didn't feel safe, especially wearing a kippah uh, in a place that so celebrated a past filled with hate. Um, and there are some other moments when I go to Europe uh, in Kosovo, interestingly, which is majority Muslim, I feel fine wearing a kippah. In Paris, I don't. In London, I don't. And so it varies a lot based on locale. And a part of me when I don't wear a kippah feels a sense of self-loathing. It feels like um, it makes me worry that I'm a self-hating Jew and I'm a rabbi. I'm supposed to be a symbol of the community and I too am hiding. What can that possibly say about who I am as a person of faith? Nice. Jonathan, you know, when you ask this question, I sometimes think about how a white supremacist hears this um, from, from his perspective or from her perspective, because I feel that I have read a lot and heard a lot recently, and there are many books that have been published, well-known ones, about the diminishing population of the white race. And I feel that there's a certain threat that we're not listening to. I mean, we can always play that victim mentality because there is a, there's a true fear there from our parts, fear of, of, of danger of our children and of our own lives here in the United States. Um, but I want to find a way for ourselves and our children not to make that divide bigger. How can we be part of that solution? And when I read books or articles in New York Times, um, which talk about why the white race or, or particular members of the white race are threatened, I try to look at it from their perspective. And I try to think about the words of the Quran where God says over and over again to use wisdom, to use patience, to persevere. And this, this is where a lot of the inner core values of us as human beings and of our faith traditions come out. Can we listen to the other? We're all part of one human race. How can we make each other feel better? What are people threatened about? Are they threatened that they value a particular aspect of their race and culture, which is now diminishing because people like us are coming in and are so entitled to who we are and what we are and, 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 and what happens to the reality that that there is a concern of this white culture being erased or whatever that might be, the Anglo-Protestant culture, which there are a lot to value in that. I mean, my own husband is from that, from that culture and from that background. And so when people are voting for Trump as human beings, are they voting to really hate us? Or is there something that we can talk about? Is there something that I, as a Muslim, can listen to? and t talk to my kids about and tell them, look, maybe people are threatened because they value something. Whether it's wrong or right, we still have to listen as human beings. How can we hear each other? How can we really love and embrace, even if it hurts? And so for, for my children, oftentimes on Fridays particularly, I normally don't wear the hijab, but on Fridays when I'm coming here, it's a very special day for me. I, I tend to you know, wear the hijab and wear my beads and I come here prepared you know, to, to witness God with many other people.
beautiful people here, uh, my Muslim colleagues and, and, and sometimes Jewish colleagues who join in the synagogues. It's, it's, a, it's a day where I feel that I can witness the fragrance of paradise almost. So I, I come here very different on a Friday, but on the aftermath of September 11, and much after that, even till today, um, I don't necessarily wear my hijab anymore when I walk because I think about people who are threatened and who might be a threat to me. And I think about the fact that they might not understand, they might not know me, or they might not know any Muslim for that matter. So the Quran asks us to use hikmat, which means wisdom. What, I mean, do I expect, am I that entitled that I expect everybody to understand where I'm coming from and just expect that everybody should should just adopt my values and understand me? Um, people might be angry, for different reasons. People may not have had such a blessed, exposed life as I have. And as a minority, sometimes I do feel I'm blessed because it forces me to think and understand and become better. Um, and so for me, the, the answer to your question, Jonathan, is really that, that for me, I just look inward. What role can I play? Because the reality is this is not going to go away. And people are hurting and people are threatened on both sides. So what can we do? I mean, do we really need to wear a hijab on the street at times when there is certain threat and danger? Well, some people would legitimately say yes, because that's what the United States stands for, and it's a basic human right and freedom. Um, and I would agree with that. But at the same time, the reality is not that black and white. In a lot of ways, with white supremacy, with Islamophobia, with anti-Semitism, it feels like it's a faceless organization. There is no, um, you know, there there isn't across the street a house of worship where you can go and address this directly. Um, it does feel sometimes like our administration or the presidential administration does stand for many of those things. But I'm curious if there was uh, a face, if there was someone you could listen to, what would you want to start the conversation with, what would you want to start uh, listening for in that relationship? So I think that hate is born of isolation. And there were studies on Islamophobia. And the single biggest mitigating factor for people who would otherwise be predisposed to Islamophobia, what reduced that sentiment and the actions that grow from it, was actually knowing a Muslim person. So relationship is a, a remarkable curative. And so I'm not sure that white supremacy is faceless. I actually think many white supremacists increasingly want to be seen and known, and that that tendency is a pathological form of loneliness and isolation. And one of the reasons that my understanding is people join hate groups is to belong somewhere. And so what if we could provide them with a better place to belong? Um, I struggle greatly. I would say that I am working on the compassion that Nas evinces naturally, and I feel real anger towards people who espouse hatred of my community and hatred of Muslims. And yet I'm tempered by the words of the Rambam, uh, Moses Maimonides, hear truth from whatever source it comes. And that means that I still go and I listen to Wagner, even though he was a hateful person in addition to a composer. I still read Heidegger, even though he was actually a real deep, true hater of Jews. 
there is still much that we can learn even from people who espouse hate. It doesn't mean that we should condone it. It doesn't mean we should permit it. It doesn't mean we can allow it to be mainstream or pretend that there are good people on both sides. But it does mean that we can stand to learn. And insofar as we have the human capacity to do so, it's worthwhile. By the same token, I also think that we spend a lot of time combating hate. And that's important. We need to do it. We need to marginalize. We need to provide a corrective. We cannot normalize or allow hate to become even more mainstream. And unfortunately, I think many of our public leaders have allowed it to become. But we can also build something better. And that is a far more valuable use of our time and resources. So the collaborations that we have with Cordoba House are to try to create something better. And I think that that is the strongest antidote to hatred is an alternative. And same goes for the white supremacist who feels unseen, unheard, uncared about. It's can we provide them with a better alternative? Because human beings are innately good, and that means these people were trained or created to hate. They were, they were taught to hate. So how do we keep them from being taught hate in the first place? Keep them from being radicalized into terrorist extremists, as the shooter in Pittsburgh I would classify very clearly as a terrorist extremist who is radicalized. And how do we provide them with a better way to live, a sense of community that is not contingent on hate and the possibility of a more positive future. So Jonathan, for me, I would answer that question more personally. Um, I once read a very crude translation of, um, of, uh, of an advice or a poem by, by Rumi and um, Jalaluddin Rumi, the well-known poet. And um, what the advice really said was that, you know, theologians and um, scholars and politicians um, discourse with one another and dialogue with one another, whereas the people who love embrace one another. So to answer your question, what would I say to a person who is threatened or a white supremacist or anybody. It doesn't have to be a white supremacist to a degree. I think there are many people who don't come out with it that might be threatened by what's happening or that might look at uh, a culture that's alien to them, you know, pervading their streets and neighborhoods and schools in some respects, you know. Uh, And so for me, I would just start with a meal, you know, because I feel that human beings in general um, all, all need love. They all need to be embraced. They all need to be heard. And that's a fundamental human dignity. So I would start by, by those things. And oftentimes you don't need to talk to say, listen, you know, I care and I understand from one human being to another. And I'm also reminded there is a saying of the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, which is called a hadith. Uh, where his um, all his sayings are recorded. And there's, there's a particular set of hadith that are very close to my heart, and those are the hadith that, that are apparently um, recorded directly from what God said to Prof- Prophet Muhammad in the first person. And one of those hadith say that um, it's a person who's, who's, who's in heaven, and he looks at the many different layers and stations of heaven, and he's a person that has been wronged by another, and, but he goes to heaven. And he looks upon the different layers of heaven, and he says to God, God, who's, who belongs to that highest level of heaven? 
And God says to him, you will if you forgive your brother. So there is something deeply compassionate about God himself. And he's compassionate and he loves compassion. And he loves understanding. And in order to forgive, you have to have understanding of the other and compassion of the other. So for me, I believe that every human being can or has the opportunity to be called to heal themselves. And I believe that part of our role is to invite people to that aspect of themselves. It's interesting bringing into conversation the notion of forgiveness and requirements of change. There, were, there was one very remarkable Jewish response to the murderer in Pittsburgh. That was by the nurse, the Jewish nurse who saved his life and treated him in um, the local medical center. That is a Jewish response that we save lives. And the other response is to require people to change. Um, forgiveness is not something that one grants typically in Jewish tradition for a person who does not change, but we believe deeply in the human capacity to change. And so we are not bestowing upon everyone forgiveness and love if they continue to espouse hate, but we have a deep belief that people can change and improve and that there's no such thing as an unredeemable person. And so we hold a lot of tension and hurt. It's people hate us. And we have the faith that even those people can change. And the very difficult task and the emotional labor that is so exhausting these days is the question of how we can change hearts and minds at a moment when for our very survival we need to. The emotional exhaustion is palpable in you, and yet you both bring such amazing energy towards the collaboration, towards the, towards the relationship that you're inventing. You're, you're inventing whole cloth. There are not many communities like you. I, I know that you are also enjoying the process of inventing something new, inventing something entirely different, a uh, different way of worshiping together, a different way of not worshiping together, but also being in the same space. That must feed you. Do you have an idea of what you're building, what you're looking for next, how you want to like see this thing grow and, and what you can give to the world as a result of it? I think we are focusing on relationship right now. And what is giving us such energy and hope, or at least what's giving me such energy and hope, is the depth of relationship and sincerity of relationship. And from relationship, all sorts of things can emerge and bloom. And I think a lot is happening by virtue of connecting our communities at a number of different moments. And what is yet to emerge remains to be seen, but there is so much possibility and hope by virtue of having two communities that are meaningfully and in an ongoing way, ongoing way connected. Um, there's something about ongoing relationship that is very different than one-off connections. For a lot of people, interfaith dialogue and collaboration is one meal. And the hope is that the incredible meal at Naz's home or my home or whatever is the start. And when it is, a lot can happen. So we are in the dreaming phase, we are in the building phase, but most importantly, we are investing in relationship 
so that whatever happens next, it is done with compassion and love and mutual respect, as well as acknowledgement of difference. And I think, Jonathan, there's honestly for, for me, and I can say this for the rabbi as well, if I, if I may, with your permission, rabbi, is that we drink from a much deeper well, and that is the spirit of, of God himself and his light. There's a prayer in the Islamic tradition where we say, you know, God, be the, the, the ears that I hear with, be the sight that I see with, now be the heart that I love with, give me light above me, light below me, light on the right of me, light on the left of me. And this light of God is really what nourishes me. And that's the well that I drink from, which is eternal. So I feel that this is what rejuvenates me when I see the rabbi. I share that light with him. When my light diminishes and I have a hard day with the community and we're all ministering, um, and I see the rabbi and his positive, he will come up and greet me and shake hands with me, and he's such a source of light. So it actually, both of us coming together, helps us increase each other's strength, which is ultimately, you know, the strength that comes, I believe, from, from the eternal source of strength and the eternal source of light. And this has been very helpful. And the friendship and the love are all attributes from the eternal love. And this has been something uh, incredibly positive for me to move forward. Um, and having said that, all these issues of, you know, hate and justice and st everything that we have to stand up for and stand up to against the world ultimately are all a test for ourselves. Because there are verses in the Quran where, the, where God reminds his beloved prophets, all of them, Prophet Abraham, Prophet um, Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon all of them, Prophet Moses, Sayyidina Musa, salam, Sayyidina Isa, salam, he reminds them that no matter how much you try, there are some people who just won't listen and won't believe. And this is God saying this. And then he says, you know, do they propose to teach God their religion? You know, which, is, which, which, which makes me feel that God is saying this. So then, but at the same time, he's asking us to continue to be good, to continue to, be, to try, and he encourages to do so. So ultimately, Jonathan, I feel that this is really a test for us. All these things that really come and go will come and go, and they will continue. But what are the choices that we make? And what are the choices that we're inviting others to make? Um, okay, everything we build and break, we've talked about building a multi-faith center, and Rabbi and I dream about this by the minute, where we can have like a center where we can have Eastern Temple and Cordoba House and a Christian group and Hindu and Sikh groups all together, like a, like a, like a WeWorks that is for religious people almost, you know, if I may say so. We dream about this. We dream about people with light coming together to strengthen each other and the world and to help heal um, and to do good work. Um, but, you know, ultimately, no matter what structure human beings build and break, um, everything is constantly in transition in this life, and so are we. So what remains of us are our actions. And that is where we need to pay attention to ourselves, particularly when we're challenged. So I love that you use the word test. There's a beautiful commentary, a beautiful midrash uh, on the 10 tests of the prophet Abraham, the original Jew, the original, I mean, we're Abrahamic people for a reason. And it's neslihid noses, in the test you unfurl your true banner. And I think that if there's something that has been evident to me, 
it's in the trying time that the past year has been, we have seen each other's true colors. And so there is a depth of trust that has emerged in the past year by virtue of going through it in such close collaboration. It has not meant the year has been free of pain. I am exhausted. I feel moments that really feel filled with hurt and suffering. And yet there's such depth of trust and relationship because it has been a year so filled with it. And so we are unfurling our banner because we're being tested right now. Naz Georges, Rabbi Josh Stanton, thank you so much for speaking with Beliefs. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Our guest this week, Naz Georges, Executive Director of Cordoba House, and Rabbi Josh Stanton of East End Temple in New York City. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, please come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support from the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.